Good afternoon. Our uh, final case of today is NRA LZS. And we'll hear from the appellant. Thank you, Chief Justice Newbies and Associate Justice. Um, my name is Lee Gillum. I'm in the Office of the Parent Defender. I'm an Assistant Parent Defender there, and I'm representing the respondent father, Mr. Seymour, today. And I just want to thank the uh, court for giving me the opportunity to present my client's case and thank the court for opening this beautiful courtroom once again. Nice to be back. And I would like to save five minutes of my time for rebuttal. There's uh, two, two issues presented in this case. One is the sufficiency of the order, but the, the other question is the one I want to address first, and it's very similar to the question that you heard in the case before this one, and that is, what does fundamental fairness mean in a, proce a proceeding where the government changes from being ally to an adversary of the parent-child relationship? And this um, hearing that we have uh, before you now is not the termination of parental rights hearing. It was a parental rights order, but um, the hearing that is on for review right now is not that hearing. It's the hearing <coughs> where reunification with a parent was eliminated from the child's permanent plan. And I want to stress that fundamental fairness is, is as important in this type of proceeding as it is in the termination of parental rights proceeding because it is a watershed moment in a juvenile case where the government changes its role from being the parent's ally to being the parent's adversary. And um, juvenile cases start when the child is removed. The, um, the Department of Social Services is supposed to work first to strengthen the family, and uh, reunification is the, is the first permanent plan. That's in the... Uh, Section 7B900 and um, 7B906.2. And that's because um, juvenile cases rightly begin with the presumption that the best possible outcome in that case is for the parent to remediate the circumstances that cause the child's removal and to reunify the child and the, and the parent. And so when the case begins, DSS is working with the parent working reunification, trying to help the parent address whatever issues they are. But then when um, the department thinks that um, reunification is no longer um, uh, likely to be successful, and it's clearly unlikely to be successful, um, and they, they move the court to take that out of the child's permanent plan, that's a very serious moment of the case because that's when the department begins to gather evidence for litigation rather than assist the parent to uh, correct the conditions. And that's why um, fundamental fairness belongs in that type of hearing just as much as in a termination of parental rights hearing. And it needs to be fundamentally fair so we can avoid unnecessarily separating a child from uh, his or her parents. And there's, there's a specific rule that I'm asking the, um, the court to recognize today in a hearing when reunification is removed from the permanent plan, and that rule is that a hearing is not fundamentally fair 
when appointed counsel withdraws without notice to the client and no showing of unjustifiable cause. And that is the um, rule of KMW, which was decided by this court a little over a year ago. And um, I, I think these two cases are uh, factually similar enough that you can rely on KMW and you can um, reverse the order C certification and send it back for a new hearing where the um, father is represented by, by counsel and also um, vacate the termination of parental rights order to again begin that process of either having the department prove that um, reunification is clearly unlikely to be successful or um, carrying on with reunification. Well, well, Mr. Gillum, you alluded to, to TAM, but of course, excuse me, to KMW, but of course the most recent case out of this court on the right to counsel subject is TAM. That's, Can that's absolutely you talk to me about why under TAM uh, the trial court's order wouldn't be upheld? Well, um, KMW alluded to the possibility of what I'm going to call constructive service or inferred notice. Because in, in, um, in uh, KMW, the notice was served only on the department, not on the parent. The notice that the uh, attorney was moving to withdraw. And um, KAM said, well, if the um, court had, had made an inquiry about um, this withdrawal and whether uh, the parent knew ahead of time that this could happen, um, whether the attorney had a, 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 reason, a reasonable reason to stop representing the client, then the fact that notice wasn't served on the parent is not a fatal error. But, and then TMW uh, took that idea of what I'm going to call constructive service or inferred notice and took um, a much broader view. And it um, almost merged the idea of the, um, the, three, the three pieces that KMW talked about is to withdraw from a case that has to be, first of all, notice, which is the most important. Second of all, um, justifiable cause to withdraw. And third, the permission of the trial court. So <clears throat> TMW doesn't really make a distinction between um, the notice requirement and the justifiable cause requirement. And it took a, a very broad view of notice, whether the, um, the client had notice. And TAM looked at the entire juvenile case from the beginning to the termination hearing to um, what it called all the surrounding circumstances and deciding that, yes, the notice was sufficient. And once we got, got past notice, um, justifiable cause was there. And I'm, I'm giving you a really long um, answer to your question. But I, I, really, I really do I, have I, I figure, I figure you'll get there eventually, so I'm keep going. There. I'm getting there. So um, TEM talked about a good faith attempt at notice. And it talked about um, the fact that a, a, um, the notice of withdrawal was served eight days before the hearing. Now, this case is distinguishable from TAM on, from that standpoint because the, um, 
the attorney in this case did not bother at all to serve his client, at least according to the record. There's no certificate of service attached to the motion. The, um, the order from that hearing says the trial counsel moved to withdraw at the beginning of the hearing, and um, there was no indication at all that, the, that an attempt was made to provide notice to the client. So that's, that's the first um, distinguishing fact from TAM. First, first of all, the notice was served eight days before, and then um, it was um, addressed to the parent. The other um, distinction that we can make between this case and TAM is that um, it, it seemed from the record in, in um, TAM that the notice of withdrawal might have been sent to the wrong address. <clears throat> but the, the um, court in TAM found that that wasn't a fatal error because the parent had deliberately created that problem by um, concealing their whereabouts from the department, and I think that was extrapolated to the attorney as well. Now, <clears throat> this case seems a little bit similar um, on its face because the, um, the parent's address was not known by, um, by the department or by, by apparently by counsel. But in, in this case, there's no finding that the parent was deliberately concealing that information. In this case... Well, I mean, I think your colleagues, when they get their turn, are probably going to argue that your client, un unlike the parent in TAM never appeared at all. Right. To what relevance, I mean, assuming that they make that argument and they've been it in their brief, so I say we'll hear it again today, um, assuming that they make that argument, what should we make of it? Uh, my client was, was incarcerated until um, December of, of 2019. So um, during the time before that, he could have been written in for a hearing by his attorney. So the, um, the fact that he didn't come to a hearing before December of 2019 um, is due to the fact that his attorney did not writ him to the hearing. Now, whether the hearing or whether the attorney said, hey, do you want to write you in? And the, the, the client said, oh, don't bother. I don't have, I don't have time for that. Um, whether that conversation happens is not on the record. But we, we do know that there's no um, writs for um, attendance at the hearing in the record, so um, that that could not be held against my client in the same way it was held against um, the client in TEM. The other the other thing that is different is that um, he was living out of state during the um, when he got out of uh, got out of prison, and there's no indication that he had um, the means by which to attend the hearing. There's no indication that he had um, transportation to come back. So um, he has... I mean, there's no, ev there's no in evidence about that one way or the other, is Right. Okay. But if, given the fact that the surrounding circumstances have to show that the, the parent either had notice or could have had notice that he had behaved himself, um, if that has to be in the record, it's not in the record here. And so that brings us back to the simple question of 
did he have notice of the motion to withdraw? And I think plainly he didn't. And if there's no facts in the record that establish that he um, either had notice that can be inferred or he was avoiding notice due to bad behavior, if those facts aren't in the record, then this case is not uh, TAM, it's KMW, and the, um, the order should be reversed. And factually, even though uh, the father never came to court here in this case, wasn't he still in contact with his own father, and wasn't he still presenting himself at least uh, indirectly, if not directly, as being a resource in terms of wanting to stay involved in the case? Oh, absolutely. And during the time he was incarcerated, <clears throat> excuse me, um, The court had found at the at the end of, near the end of his incarceration, the last review of the case before he was um, released, the court had found that he had entered a, 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 an out of home services agreement. Um, he had asked the court to um, allow the child to stay with his relatives until he could kind of get back on his feet, and he had asked that. Um, he eventually be allowed to, to reunify with his child. So uh, most definitely he stayed in contact with the department when he was in, incarcerated. And then when he got out, he, um, he did call the department in early January, about two weeks after he got out, and um, he just let them know, um, I, I don't have um, housing yet. And um, after that, it was uh, social services that called him, <clears throat> and there was, there was one call in February where um, his voicemail was full and, and he um, didn't take the call. And then um, soon after that, in early February, the mom says, well, I know how to reach him. He's on Facebook. So um, let me just uh, try to, to make a video call over Facebook. And um, he, was, he was found uh, that way. And then after that, he, he, he um, got his number to DSS, and when they called after that, he answered when they called. And I think there were, um, on my count, there were eight instances when they called him and he answered the phone. And, um, you know, the, the conversation, it seems, kind of went, went like this. Are, are you, do you have a house yet? And he said, I'm still looking. And uh, DSS says, well, well, we'll start giving you visits and start working on a plan when you get a house. But don't, don't call us until you get a house. And so um, he remained homeless, as, as far as the record shows, during that entire uh, time. And, but he was not, even though he didn't have an address he could give DSS, as, as far as the record shows, um, he did answer the phone when they called, and he was available to, um, to take their calls. <clears throat> Now, the other um, the other distinctions that we can draw with um, with TAM were that in TAM the attorney spoke with the client the day of the hearing and represented the court that the client did not object. And there's there's no indication in the record here that um, the attorney tried to call Mr. Seymour and say, you know, let's, let's talk. Tell me what you want to what you want to do here. And then the um, the other the other factor was that um, the um, parent in TAM 
had been warned of the possibility that his attorney could withdraw if uh, the parent failed to participate. And um, this, that fact would cut the other way in this case, because in this case, um, the juvenile petition was filed on a in April of, of 2019. The petition names Mr. Seymour as a respondent, and it lists his address as the Columbus Correctional Institute. But DSS did not get him served until three days before the adjudication hearing. And um, at the adjudication hearing, the, um, the mom stipulated that the child was, was neglected. Um, if that order had been appealed, I think it would have been um, reversed because you know, one parent can't stipulate and consent to, to an adjudication. But um, Mr. Seymour did not have um, the, the petition and summons until three days prior to that hearing and, and the um, rendition of the, the participants of the hearing, there's no mention of Mr. Seymour and no mention of his attorney. So if um, fundamental fairness hinges on the whole surrounding circumstances, of this case, then um, Mr. Seymour kind of started with uh, one foot in the quicksand before it even started because he had not been able to um, contest these allegations at the very beginning due to not having counsel and only being served three days prior and no writ being issued for his, his attendance at the hearing. <clears throat> and then the other, the other thing that I think distinguishes this case from, from TAM is that um, in the um, court report for the hearing, the social worker noted that Mr. Seymour had said, I'm, I'm just frustrated. I haven't heard from my attorney yet. I don't even know his name. And um, so what, what can I, I do now? So um, from, from that side of the, of the coin, it sounds like there was, there was, it was a, a two-way um, lack of communication. Mr. Seymour wasn't hearing from his counsel, and Mr. Seymour's counsel wasn't hearing from Mr. Seymour. And so finally, counsel just made this motion to withdraw that was, that was granted by the, the trial court. <clears throat> and I think those are all um, related to the lack of notice to, to, Mr., to Mr. Seymour. There, there aren't facts in the, the record here like there were in TAM that would infer notice or imply that the reason notice wasn't uh, successfully completed is because of misconduct on the part of, uh, of the parent. Now, <clears throat> and uh, the, next, the next step that KMW moved to after that is once we've got this um, idea of um, notice out of the way, what about justifiable cause? Because um, the, the law that's been around for um, a long time, since at least the, the 1980s with Michael uh, Williams, and Mike, Williams and Michael, was that um, an attorney has to show justifiable cause before uh, withdrawing. And even though the um, attorney had not heard directly from the client, there was no doubt about the client's position from the record. Um, the um, client, Mr. So, so, so it's your argument that the fact that the client has not gotten in touch with the uh, 
attorney isn't by itself sufficient cause? No, I, I, don't, I don't think it is. Okay, why not? Because there, you may not know as an attorney what your client's desires are. And then um, it, it's unfair for the attorney then to argue for a position that he doesn't know the client wants. Right? So I think that's the re reason for that rule, that, you know, that an attorney can withdraw if he doesn't have um, communication. But in this case, it, it's quite plain um, what uh, Mr. Seymour wanted, whether um, he had direct contact with his counselor or not, and that's that he wanted business with his kid, he wanted uh, placement of the kid with relatives um, while he was in prison until he could get back on his feet, and he wanted a path to reunification. And even if um, you take the position that um, it's, it's not enough to just kind of know um, secondhand what your, your client wants, um, at the very least, trial counsel could have questioned the social worker about the efforts that were made and why the social worker thought that it was um, clearly likely to be unsuccessful and um, <clears throat> how, how, um, how, the, how DSS had come to, um, to that position. And that, that's basically Murphy um, that was discussed in the, in the case before it was cited in this brief here. Um, if, if, even if the parent is not there, um, if the, um, the adversarial nature, is what they call it, of the proceeding is preserved, at least by cross-examination, the, um, the attorney could have at least done that for the, um, for the parent. And then the, the last thing that to, um, to mention is that um, there's, there's, no in, there's no waiver through misconduct um, as in uh, Simpkins. Even Simps Simpkins, um, which is a case the, um, the appellees cited, even Simpkins didn't find um, egregious misconduct, even though in that case the, um, the, um, it was a criminal defendant had not been the most, um, you know, most cooperative person in history. Even that did not rise to the egregious uh, <coughs> conduct that Simpkins talked about, like, you know, punching your attorney in the face and um, just working to delay and delay the, um, the trial. And so there's no indication here of, uh, of misconduct. The most the record shows is that um, the social worker would call um, and say, you need to find housing, we'll think about getting you visits, and he lived out of state. And um, that is not sufficient to show um, misconduct. Uh, if there's no other uh, uh, questions on that, I'll, I'll just go quickly to um, the other um, issue in the, um, in the case, and that is, um, you know, whether or not the order is sufficient to um, do this this um, grave act of, of ceasing education efforts. And the, the trial court did make a nominal finding in the order that um, reunification efforts were likely to be futile. Um, that, that was, you know, language that was um, replaced in the statute a few years ago. But I, I think it's a, it's a reasonable approximation of the language and statute now. This is clearly um, unsuccessful. And um, as I said, that is not supported by um, any, um, or 
sufficient evidence in the record, and the only finding that was made was that you know, Mr. Seymour was not actively participating in the department. He didn't have, he hadn't provided an address, and that was true, but um, there's no indication that he had an address to provide, and he was just hiding it, and he hadn't engaged in an out-of-home service agreement. Now, that's not quite true either, because when he was in prison, and the, the, uh, the court found this in that last review hearing before he was released, that he had entered an out-of-home service agreement, and he'd done some classes in, in prison. So if that is all you have to work with, um, that is not enough to say that reunification efforts would be um, clearly unsuccessful. And there's no indication in the record um, that DSS ever sought to help Mr. Seymour find housing. You know, it was, it was uh, obviously their, their chief concern, but there's no indication that they said, okay, um, we, we have some places you can stay, we can, um, we can help you with um, you know, your, your first rental payment. There's no indication whatsoever. So until the department has offered Mr. Seymour assistance with housing, then I don't think you can come to the conclusion that it's clearly unlikely to be successful. And they, they did not let him even visit with his son because he, he wouldn't provide an address. And um, that seems to be like the, the very least that the department could do if reunification is the plan that we at least let the parent and child visit with one another to try to reestablish a, a, a bond between them. And um, I'm, I'm cutting into my rebuttal time, so if there's no questions on that, I'll um, reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Council. We'll hear from the appellee. Good afternoon. May it please the court, Mr. Chief Justice, members of the court. My name is Lauren Arizaga-Womble, and I represent the Chowan County Department of Social Services. It is my first time appearing before the Supreme Court, and it's an honor to be here. I'll be sharing time with Grant Simpkins. He represents the Guardian Ad Litem Program, and we intend to share our time equally. I will address the cease reunification efforts order, and Mr. Simpkins will address the withdrawal and absence of counsel issue. I wanted to raise and or highlight a few facts for the court um, that were not raised by appellant counsel. First, we have a child who has, is four years old and has been in foster care for two and a half years, more than half his life, and a respondent father who engaged more in a case plan when he was incarcerated than when he was released from prison. The respondent father was released on December 21st of 2019 and did not contact the department. The phone call referenced in January was actually in response to the department going to the address, um, the respondent father's home address, trying to locate the father. The father then responded saying he would have his son contact the department, which he did. Um, the father also confirmed that his son was not living there, um, but the respondent father continued not to provide an address to the department. In January, the first review hearing, the trial court ordered the respondent father to provide an address to the department. Again, in, um, in June, the trial court also ordered the father to um, provide an address to the department. He did not do so on either date. And on, through all those dates, he had counsel. As of the August 2020 uh, cease reunification hearing date, 
The father had still not provided an address to the, to the department. Following the hearing where the, where the efforts were uh, ceased, the department again attempted to reach out to this respondent father nine additional times, both via phone and, e and by mail, to no avail. The very first time the respondent father appeared in court was on the second day of the TPR proceedings. Uh, this father was living in uh, a neighboring county at the time and, and, and not out of state. Um, in fact, he testified at the TPR proceedings that um, he didn't come to the proceedings because he lived in Elizabeth City and not Edenton. Um, can I just clarify one thing? As you are explaining the department repeatedly asking for an address, is the significance of that that they were trying to have um, like a mailing address, a place they could reach him, or were they, were they trying to ascertain whether or not he had a home suitable to um, begin visit, you know, providing a home for his child? Yes, so I, I believe that the issue at that point became the address for the parent where, where he was residing because um, in the October 24, 2019 review, while the father was still incarcerated, the trial court found that the father was doing well in prison, that he was going to live with his father upon his release from prison, that he agreed that he was going to engage in parenting classes. However, subsequent to that hearing, the father engaged in um, behavioral misconduct in prison and his release date was actually delayed due to his behavioral infractions. So we actually saw a digress in the father's behavior which caused concern and the department's need to assess the father's situation upon his release. And if he was, so if it wasn't just an, uh, a mailing address or a way to contact him but you actually wanted to know from him where he was living and whether that would be a place where a child could live, what could he tell you if he was homeless? Well, he never reported he was homeless. He just would not provide an address. He, uh, the record reflects that uh, the department would ask him what his address was or um, if he could be a placement. He said, well, my grandmother might be available to be a placement, but I'll call you back. He repeatedly stated he would call back or he would appear for meetings or participate in CFT meetings or come to court and then would repeatedly not appear. So the father continually, um, we would contend, um, hid his whereabouts and, and, and did not engage and participate. Now regarding the um, uh, standard of review, it is our contention the standard of review is as it is stated in LORB that the court first must consider the statutory determination, if the order contains the statutory determinations pursuant to 7B906.2 and then also consider the, the court's ultimate decision to cease reunification efforts and eliminate reunification as a plan and that it was as, as a result of an, a reasoned decision and not an abuse of discretion. Regarding the proper determinations, um, the, it is true that the language in the trial court's order does not specifically quote 7B906.2B, um, but it clearly embraces the substance of the statute. Uh, this court has held on prior, several prior occasions and as recently as last year in LLRLB that the trial court's written findings do not quote the exact statutory language, but the order of the trial court must be sufficient to be clear that the trial court considered the evidence in light of whether reunification would be futile or would be inconsistent with the juvenile's health, safety, and need for a safe permanent home within a reasonable time. This is the exact language that is used in the trial court's order. And it is true, it is from the prior statute 7B507, which controlled cease reunification efforts previously. 
It's our contention, therefore, that the language in the trial court's order on its face is sufficient to meet the statutory determination in 7B602B. We next move to whether the findings support the conclusions of law and also take into consideration the respondent's father's um, degrees of success or failure towards reunification and whether um, the reunification would be futile and inconsistent with the minor child's health and safety. The trial court and the permanency planning order made several findings of fact regarding this. First, the trial court found he was not in communication with his attorney. The court found that the respondent father, upon his release from custody, was delayed one month due to behavioral infractions. And this is important because this is eight months after he became aware that the department was, um, that his child was in the custody of the Department of Social Services. And so even after all that time, he was still delayed to become available. The court found upon his release, he did not contact the department to provide an updated address or contact number. In fact, the court specifically found that the department obtained his contact information from the prison and, and they reached out to engage him into the process. I referenced this earlier, but I believe this is particularly important because the court did find in its October 2019 order that the father was doing well, um, he was going to engage in parenting classes, and he was going to live with family when he um, was released from custody. And we know now that none of those things happened. So what we see in the permanency planning order is actually um, a digression in the father's behavior. The court found the father did not engage in his out-of-home service agreement. Uh, there is a distinction between entering a service agreement and engaging in a service agreement. He even refused to review the goals of his, his plan with the department. Um, the, upon review of the record, the department reached out on several occasions to review his goals with him. And the father would say, I'll have to call you back. As of the August 13, 2020 cease reunification order, eight months after his release from prison, the father still did not provide an address to the department. In June of, that, of 2020, he reported he was again moving, which would indicate that he was residing somewhere and just not providing that address, and trying to find his own place. Court found the father had prior criminal history, and among other, uh, uh, including possession of a firearm by a felon, resisting a public officer, discharging a weapon. The father did not have consistent employment. The father did not make, uh, maintain uh, contact with the department. He attended one CFT meeting in the eight months after his release from custody, but left that meeting early. He engaged that in that meeting by phone, but left early after he became angry and irate after being asked about providing child support. The court found the barriers to reunification were the lack of the, his relationship with the minor child, failure to participate with the department, and failure to provide an address. The court also found return of, the home, return of the child to the home within six months would not be possible. The court also found the conditions which led to the removal of the child continue to exist. Now, it is true that at the time the child was taken into DSS custody, the respondent father was incarcerated and unavailable. But as of the date of the cease efforts hearing, he was again unavailable, but this time by his own choice. Uh, the, court, the Court of Appeals is held in, in, J, in NRAJAK. There was a father who was actually engaged in a case plan. He was engaged in visitation. He did not permit home visits. He was unable to provide stable housing. The Court of Appeals held 
that that lack of initiative, show lack of initiative by the father was sufficient to show a reunification would not be successful or consistent with the juvenile's health or safety. And in Ray HD, the court found that a parent who did not complete their case plan had pending criminal charges, and there was a specific finding in that case that the court that the child could not return home within six months. That was sufficient to show to establish that reunification would be futile. Many of these findings set forth in uh, the the subject trial court's order are also um, listed to be sufficient in this court's decision in LLRB. It is our contention that the, the findings in the permanency planning order are more than sufficient to affirm the trial court's order. Even so, uh, this court has the benefit of reviewing both the TPR orders in conjunction with the cease efforts order and utilizing findings of facts from the TPR order to cure any deficiencies. The trial court made additional and numerous and additional findings in the TPR orders, all of which are unchallenged findings by the appellant. In fact, there's not one alleged error in regards to the TPR proceedings, so the only uh, way the TPR uh, order would be overturned is if this court vacates the cease efforts order. Now, some of those additional findings in the, CSEP and the TPR proceedings were the father had not seen the juvenile since he was six months old prior to his incarceration. The father, although duly notified of court, of court he hearings, had not attended any court hearing prior to the second day of the TPR proceeding. The father, although being aware the juvenile was in custody of the department, did not inquire into his health, welfare. He did not send cards, letters, nothing. The court found that the father testified that he, the department had contacted him seven or eight times to com and confirmed that he needed to engage in his case plan, attend parenting classes, and contact child support, and we know he did not. He never submitted to a visitation plan. He never requested the department to assess his home. In fact, um, he never even provided an address until the second day of the TPR. And specifically, the court found that he continued to exhibit he was in no position to care for Leon, the juvenile. The father reported he had a room in his uh, grandmother's house for the juvenile, but never throughout the 16 months of this case provided an alternative address for the department to assess. The father failed to exhibit any interest in the minor child. He did not complete the parenting classes that he agreed to do. And the court found to date, the date of the TPR, the father had not presented himself as an appropriate placement option. The court found there's a substantial risk of physical, mental, or emotional impairment of the juvenile as a consequence of the father's actions, and that the failure of the father to provide, and as a result of the fa father's failure to provide proper care and supervision. The court found the father failed to engage with the department to work towards reunification. The, the, and, Finally, the court found there was no relationship or bond between the respondent father and the juvenile. Considering both the cease efforts order and the TPR orders together, the trial court, it's our contention the trial court made all of the required statutory determinations and they support the conclusions of the law. Given the totality of the evidence in the trial court's extensive orders, I ask that you would affirm the trial court's decision to cease reunification efforts and terminate parental rights for the respondent father. And if there's no questions, I will defer to Mr. Simpkins. Thank you, Counsel.
Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, my name is Grant Simpkins, and I represent Leon, the appellee in this case, as the guardian ad litem. I will be addressing whether the trial court erred in permitting the trial counsel of the appellant to withdraw before the permanency planning review hearing. This case is about the collision of critical fundamental principles which should be mutually promoted. The best aims and the justice of Leon and the integrity of the judicial process. This court should affirm the decision of the trial court to permit the withdrawal of appellant's counsel for two reasons. First, the decision to permit withdrawal of appellant's counsel by the trial court was not an abuse of discretion. And second, the appellant did not actively participate in the proceedings and a lawyer cannot adequately represent a client to whom he has no contact. This court has established that a trial court's decision to permit withdrawal of counsel is reviewed on an abuse of discretion and the court established this in N. Ray Tam. And it is important to note that the standard of review in this proceeding is not de novo. The appellee here has cited, or the appellant, pardon me, has cited to 7B-1101.1 for the right to counsel provision. But that provision actually governs the right to counsel in a termination of parental rights case. And that is not at issue here. As my co-counsel argued previously, the appellant did have counsel at the TPR proceeding. And the appellant's counsel actively litigated both days of that TPR proceeding. Well, we do, he does have a statutory right to a counsel at a permanency planning hearing, too, doesn't he? That's correct, Your Honor. The general right to counsel provision under Chapter 7B is found in 7B-602. And that statute specifically says, at the first hearing, the court shall dismiss the provisional counsel if the respondent parent does not appear at the proceeding, does not qualify for a court-appointed counsel, has retained counsel, or waives the right to counsel in the disjunctive. And as outlined by the appellee DSS and in the briefs, appellant did not appear at a single hearing prior to the second day of the TPR hearing, over one year after being released from custody of the state. And as this court noted that in Ray Tam, such cases as these are fact-specific and hence dependent upon the unique facts of any given case. So therefore, under the abuse of discretion standard and looking at the unique facts of this case, it is clearly distinguishable from N. Ray KMW and N. Ray Tam, which both involve the withdrawal of counsel at the termination of parental rights proceedings. And again, he had counsel at those proceedings. Is it your contention, then, that the rules for allowing withdrawal at permanency planning hearings are different from those at termination hearings? No, Your Honor. It is not our contention. I mean, I had always understood, and if my understanding is wrong, please tell me, but I had understood we basically used the same approach in analyzing withdrawal issues in, you know, Chapter 7B proceedings, regardless of the nature of the proceeding. Is that wrong? No, Justice Ervin. That is correct. But the issue here is whether that was an abuse of discretion. And it is important to distinguish the permanency planning hearing from the TPR hearing in this regard, because the TPR hearing is where the liberty interest of the right to parent is most fundamentally challenged. Here, he was provided the right to counsel during that termination of parental rights hearing, and therefore, we should only review this decision by the trial court under an abuse of discretion standard. And as this court notes, an abuse of discretion standard... I mean, again, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but are you arguing that because counsel was afforded and actually appeared and participated at least on the second day of the termination hearing, that that has some bearing on whether it was appropriate to allow a withdrawal motion at an earlier proceeding? No, Your Honor. Okay. The contention is that because there was counsel at the termination of parental rights proceeding, 
That is where the liberty interest of the right to parent is most fundamentally challenged, and it should be reviewed by a higher standard by this court, as it has been in NRA KMW and NRA TAM. But at the permanency planning hearing, when they have not appeared at any prior proceeding, using the abuse of discretion standard is more appropriate in this case, where the trial court is given the benefit of looking at the entirety of the case and the surrounding circumstances of that case. So NRA TAM, therefore, looks at the abuse of discretion standard of review. And as this court knows, great deference must be given to the trial court under abuse of discretion. And it will only be upset upon a showing that it was so arbitrary that it could not have been the result of a reasoned decision. And again, that case involves a termination of parental rights, but is nonetheless instructive. So in answering Justice Morgan's previous question to the appellant about the resources that the appellant had and what were the surrounding circumstances of this issue, as my co-counsel argued, the appellant had not seen his son since he was six months old. The appellant was released from custody in December 2019, and in the months that followed from release for custody, DSS contacted him on a number of occasions but could not maintain where he lived or have any employment status or other basics that are required for establishing some sort of relationship with Leon. And that is important because with the review of the 10 months leading up to appellant counsel's withdrawal, the court must determine whether that ruling was manifestly unsupported by reason or is so arbitrary that it could not have been the result of a reasoned decision. And the motion to withdraw in this case that was filed is short, but it is clear. The appellant's counsel noted that appellant had not appeared in court for any hearing since release in December 2019, did not contact his attorney or appear in court despite his attorney's request, and appellant indicated to trial counsel that he would appear at several court dates and did not make a single appearance. And the trial court, in the order granting the withdrawal of counsel, specifically said, quote, the court having reviewed the motion together with the case file, argument of counsel, and after having reviewing applicable statutory law. Again, while that is short, it is very clear. The trial court considered broadly the circumstances which may render that ruling justifiable, and with the deference afforded to those trial courts, and the review of the record before the trial court, and the familiarity with that case, that was not such an arbitrary decision that could have not been a result of a reasoned decision. Is, is there any indication in the record that uh, any effort was made by the parent's trial counsel to provide notice of the withdrawal motion to the uh, parent? No, Your Honor. There is so, no so you agree with Mr. Gillum then that that record shows no, no, effort, no effort to give notice? That's correct, Your Honor, but it does specifically state that the appellant's trial counsel had requested that he appear at court and had um, asked him to contact him at prior occasions and did not do so. Wouldn't that be a distinguishing factor, though, that's important uh, to distinguish uh, this case from the cases upon which uh, you rely in terms of the fact that there was no notice to the respondent father, even though in cases on which you rely, uh, there was at least some uh, foreshadowing that that parent would be relieved of counsel based upon the lack of uh, activity by that parent to make himself or herself available to the court. Yes, Justice Morgan, that is certainly a distinguishable factor. However, there are other distinguishable factors here in that in those previous cases when the court was allowed to entertain whether or not the respondent's counsel or the parent's counsel had, had engaged with the parent and had asked whether or not they knew that they could withdraw. 
that the trial court had told the parents specifically at prior hearings, if you continue to not appear, your counsel may withdraw. That, of course, the first requires in the first instance that the parent appear at the trial court. And as we've outlined, the parent had not appeared at any proceeding prior to that. And while it is a short motion that outlines only a few items and the record is unclear, the trial court did specifically state that it heard arguments of counsel and had reviewed the entirety of the record. And so while it is distinguishing from prior cases that have provided clear notice and that is found in the record, there is still ample opportunity for the trial court under that abusive discretion standard to determine that this client was not actively participating in these proceedings and therefore he could not be represented by counsel. Is it your representation that in this case the respondent father was given notice expressly by the court or by the attorney that there would be the, the release of counsel? No, Justice Morgan. The record is unclear as to that and does not state specifically that he was given notice. So we're, without, we're unable to tell whether he was given a specific notice by trial counsel. But he was certainly not given notice by the trial court because he had failed to appear at any prior hearing and therefore the trial judge would not be able to make that instruction to the parent in the trial. Right. And why would that not be dispositive, uh, arguably, uh, to distinguish this case from those cases? Because in both of them, uh, the parent was not coming to court. Uh, that one and this one. But yet in this case, uh, there was not, by your own admission, any uh, express statement at all by, by any source, including the trial court, that there would be a release of the attorney otherwise. That is not a dispositive issue be under the abuse of discretion standard where the trial court has all of these avail available facts to them and in reviewing everything that has occurred up until that point of the withdrawal. And so under that standard, it, it, the court should look at whether the trial court not in a vacuum made the decision about whether or not counsel should be able to withdraw, but within those surrounding circumstances. And in this case, the trial judge was the same trial judge since the initial petition had been filed in 2019, was aware that the appellant had not appeared at any prior proceedings, was aware that he had counsel and had been represented at prior proceedings, and was unable to actually participate in those proceedings. So there's a different standard that can be looked at, and no case necessarily has the same unique facts and the same unique circumstances that would render that a dispositive issue. And that's why this court has said in previous withdrawal of counsel cases that we must look to the, the entirety of the case in determining whether or not the, the trial court abused its discretion. So in finding of fact seven, the trial court specifically found that the biological father uh, was released in December 21, 2019, and his current address is unknown, or his address is an unknown address. Uh, how can someone give notice to someone whose address is unknown? That's exactly the point, Chief Justice Newby. That is an impossibility in this case. And the transcript of the TPR specifically notes that. And starting on page 8, the withdrawn and then later reappointed counsel stated that he had never met his client personally. And this was on the first date of the TPR hearing where the appellant actually appeared by phone because he was not present in the courtroom. And this was after over a year after being released from custody and 12 months after DSS efforts to locate and establish a residence. And at the TPR hearing, the appellant further testified that he knew he had a court-appointed attorney for the case and contacted him once when he was released from custody of the state. 
but he never went to DSS to engage in a case plan or develop a visitation plan. And this line of testimony is found specifically in the transcript on page 112 through 114. And additionally, he testified at the TBR hearing that he lived with his grandmother and had items for Leon. But this was only disclosed at the last possible point in the case in providing an address to DSS and to this court. And the Court of Appeals has addressed the case with almost identical facts and circumstances. And it was not addressed in the brief, and a memorandum of additional authority can be provided, but it is found at 243 NCF 505. And in 2015 case of NRA ADB, counsel for the father was released by the trial court before a permanency planning hearing without prior notice to the father. The Court of Appeals in this case held that the father failed to extend the right of court-appointed counsel under the 14th Amendment and due process claims to the permanency planning hearing. And in analyzing the statutory right to counsel, the Court of Appeals looked specifically to 7B-602, not 7B-1101.1. And the Court of Appeals held that the trial court's release of father's counsel was not an error on the basis of no contact with his attorney. And therefore, it was not an abuse of discretion for the trial court in this case to permit withdrawal of counsel at the permanency planning hearing in August 2020. This court has also held that a lawyer cannot properly represent a client with whom he or she has no contact. And of course, when a, family, a court moves to destroy the familial bonds, there must be fundamental fairness provided. And the Court of Appeals has elaborated on this standard, as the appellant previously argued, requiring justifiable cause, reasonable notice of the client, and the permission of the court. The analysis used by this court in Smith v. Bryant requiring justifiable cause, reasonable notice, and permission of the court can and should be tailored to the particulars of the case. And in that same case, this court wrote, whether an attorney is justified in withdrawing from a case will depend on the particular circumstances, and no all-embracing rule can be formulized. On October 17, 2021, Leon turned four years old, and at the time of the TPR hearing in January 2021, he had been in the custody of DSS for 18 months. As the record and briefs for the appellees discuss, Leon has an older half-brother with him in foster care, and the family that provides for them wants to adopt both of them together. Leon needs permanence, and if this court rules that the trial court erred by allowing the appellant's counsel to withdraw, it would prevent such permanence and create further upheaval of the court proceedings by the appellant. The juvenile system in Chapter 7B has to strike the appropriate balance between the constitutional rights of the parent on the one place and achieving permanence and safety for children on the other. A ruling that the trial court made an error by allowing appellant's counsel to withdraw would require the trial court to go back to August 2020, go through reunification efforts with Leon and the appellant, require additional court hearings, DSS involvement, and inevitably another petition to terminate parental rights. In addition to the year since TPR order was issued, Leon is facing at least six months, if not more, and likely longer before having permanence. This cannot be the process that was envisioned by the General Assembly in crafting Chapter 7B, and it should not be the outcome of this proceeding. We respectfully ask this court to affirm the decision of the trial court to permit appellant's counsel to withdraw and affirm the order ceasing reunification efforts. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. I'll first note that um, no memorandum of additional authority has been served on me, so that uh, case that was cited should be struck according to Rule 28G, which says that you can't cite a case for oral argument without a, a memorandum of additional authority. 
Uh, second, I would uh, want to look at, you know, um, counsel referred to an inevitable termination of parental rights. And it, it is it's simply not inevitable that Mr. Seymour's parental rights would be terminated if the case went back and the department actually engaged in a plan of reunification with, with Mr. Seymour. And he, he has an address now. And um, it's not inevitable. It, and that also discounts the child's right to have a relationship with their parents. And I, I think we can all recognize that that is important for, for a child. Um, the other thing to, to mention is that um, the court has no discretion when there's no notice to the parent. And that's that's from, uh, from KMW. Uh, that part of KMW was not expressly overruled by TAM, but rather it was distinguished on the facts and the fact that the attorney in TAM had actually served the notice eight days before the hearing in question. Did your client ever supply an address to DSS and or the GAL upon his release from prison? Um, I don't remember exactly when it was, but there was, there was one point where he had supplied an address in, in Moyoc. But was I, I don't think he's, he, he's supplied one before um, the seizure indication hearing. Was that his father's address, uh, since there is something in the record to state that he had planned on living with his father once he got released from incarceration when he was going to plan to go to work for his father? I do not know the answer to that. So I, I, I just can't say. Was there some last known address for your client after he got out of prison? I believe the last known address would be his father's house because, um, as uh, counsel said, DSS actually went to that address to, um, to see if, if my client was there, and, and he wasn't. So I think um, counsel could have complied with his responsibilities under TAM by sending notice a week ahead of time or eight days ahead of time to that address and showing a good faith effort to provide notice. But in this case, the, um, the attorney did not make any effort to provide notice to the client. And you know, this, this day and age, I can, I can say as an attorney who represents parents, a lot of times you have to reach out on Facebook because a lot of people are on Facebook. And I've, I've been able to connect with, with clients who did not actually have a physical address that I could, I could reach them at. So um, if we could, we could talk about that question, I think, if the attorney had made some effort, but there was no effort made to serve notice of the withdrawal on the client. And that brings it back under KMW and not um, TAM. But there's a finding of fact, finding of fact seven, where the trial court explicitly finds that the address is unknown. Why doesn't that control when the trial court has found that the biological father's address is not known? Well, in, in KMW, I'm pretty sure it said that they knew that the address they sent the uh, the notice to was not a, a valid. It wasn't a place where the uh, the parent lived, but it still had to do with the attorney trying to supply a notice. And in this case, there was no effort whatsoever to supply the notice through um, phone or Facebook or, or anything. And that that like I said, brings it into uh, KMW. And my time has almost expired, so I'll just conclude by saying that um, the 
Um, sea certification order should be um, reversed because it is not fundamentally fair for the client not to have representation of counsel and as a result vacate the termination of the rights work. Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to all counsel.